This was a milestone week for California residents. Everyone aged 16 and up became eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. People are lining up, driving up, booking appointments to get that jab, as the kids say. There's a real sense of optimism that concerts, open bar weddings, even fancy tech company cafeterias will soon come roaring back. But could our post-vaccination future also get a little weird? The pandemic has opened up a Pandora's box of questions in public health, politics, and technology. But here are a few new ones. Will society or institutions need to prove who's been vaccinated? How do we do that? And who keeps our health data? This is the Information 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. On this week's episode, we're talking about vaccine passports. My colleague Nick Wingfield this week wrote about a growing coalition of companies, including Microsoft and Salesforce, that are working with nonprofits to make sure that the rollout of vaccine passports doesn't turn into a big mess. Then we check in with the Hong Kong Bureau. Coinbase wasn't the only startup this week that hit a major milestone toward becoming a public company. Singapore's ride-hailing super app Grab announced a huge merger with the SPAC, and China's Didi Chuxing said that it had filed to go public. I'll talk to Juro about these companies' prospects. First, let's get to vaccine passports. I'll start with a little personal reporting story. Last year, I was given access to watch an all-hands meeting of the real estate tech company Zillow as they were planning their back-to-the-office strategy. One employee asked a question on a lot of people's minds. Would the company enforce vaccination for employees before they return to the office? It's a question about health data, so it was a little awkward, and executives kind of sidestepped the answer. But vaccine enforcement could be an essential step toward reopening workplaces, events, and international travel. One of the first attempts is playing out in New York where people have been able to download a QR code onto their phones that says that they received the COVID-19 vaccine or a negative test result for the virus. This is called the Excelsior Pass, and Yankee Stadium, Madison Square Garden, and other New York venues are already testing it. But Paul Meyer sees a potential problem with this New York system. There's that age-old question of walled gardens. Should these systems be proprietary? What if I want to go to New Jersey? Like, I don't know, was New Jersey going to you know, do the Springsteen Pass, like at some point. Like, can I use my Springsteen Pass when I go to New York? Can I use my Excelsior Pass when I go to New Jersey? Or what if I want to fly to Aruba? Meyer runs the Commons Project, a nonprofit backed by the Rockefeller Foundation that is trying to set technical standards for vaccine passports. It's called the Vaccine Credential Initiative, or VCI. The initiative has more than 300 members, including tech heavyweights like Microsoft, Oracle, and Salesforce, along with healthcare organizations such as Mayo Clinic and Cigna. But the company behind New York's Excelsior Paths is IBM. It's not yet compatible with the system that Meyer is helping to create. If employers, states, or sports stadiums want to require proof of vaccination, Meyer's organization wants to make sure that the evidence, or the credential, is compatible across systems. Some communities, some states, some institutions are going to make that decision, and we want to be able to provide a privacy-preserving, verifiable, trusted way of implementing those policies where they're put in place. IBM, by the way, told the information it is open to working with Common Pass, but Meyer thinks that any blockchain startup or any airline that wants to kick up its own vaccine passport solution should connect into other systems, not just stand up its own walled garden. I don't think, the, put it this way, I don't think the travel industry 
should be setting standards about how health data is digitized. And so I think there are a number of startups, there are a number of companies that have come out with solutions that are effectively kind of proprietary blockchain solutions that basically require anyone downstream to connect to or pay the technology provider that help digitize those records. My colleague, Nick Wingfield, a senior editor at The Information, wrote about the Commons Project and vaccine passports this week. He was interested in part in this question of, is there a profit opportunity for some of these new digital health applications? And what would a nonprofit like the Commons Project think about that? Here's Nick. You know, I think what they're concerned about is that maybe more technology-oriented companies look at this as a moment of, of uh, to make profits, really, to make money off of this growth of digital health. And their goal is, is for this really not to be a, a source of profits. But there are other concerns with vaccine passports in general. Should they even exist? Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, put out an executive order that bans state and local governments from issuing proof of vaccination documents. J.D. Vance, the venture capitalist and author of Hillbilly Elegy, tweeted earlier this month that vaccine passports are a terrible idea, that they are a way of giving big tech even more control over our society. What Vance is concerned about really is tech uh, authoritarianism. He thinks that there are going to be records that are, are created of where you uh, of, of your digital health, but also of where you're going to shop and venues that you're visiting. And, you know, that's really an idea that um, that the backers of this open vaccine uh, standard that I'm talking about in this story push back on. They say it's really just about proving your vaccine status and your testing status. It's not a portal into all sorts of other information. And this isn't a totally new thing. Parents typically have to provide immunization records for their children to get registered for schools. And for decades, people have provided health documentation to travel some places internationally. Those are the kind of precedents that Meyer of the Commons Project points to. I think it's a reasonable expectation that, you know, people want to go places where they're not going to be exposed and, and get infected. Meyer says there's been this 20-year slog to set up interoperability standards for health data. One of the things that's been really missing is sort of consumer demand. Like most people don't wake up on Saturday morning saying, God, I wish I had my ready digital access to my health information. But the pandemic could be a turning point to allow people to more easily gain access to their digital health records. It can be a kind of a catalytic moment to really accelerate the adoption of sort of these interoperable, you know, kind of interoperability standards and empower people to get digital access to their health information in a way that can you know, really improve health outcomes. So it's been a big week for Asian ride-hailing companies. Singapore's Grab, a major player in Southeast Asia, announced the largest SPAC deal ever at a nearly $40 billion market cap. Didi Shuxing, the Chinese ride-hailing company, also confidentially filed to go public. And now we have the information's Juro Asawa, who works out of our Hong Kong bureau and has covered both of these companies over the years. Hey, Juro. Hey, Corey. So let's start with Grab getting billions of dollars of new cash. Uh, so 
It started as a taxi service in Malaysia in 2012, and now it describes itself as this like everyday everything app. It has food delivery and bike share and insurance and fintech. Uh, what what is Grab? Uh, what actually drives the business? So Grab, um, as you mentioned, uh, started out as a ride-hailing app, but uh, now operates um, kind of broader online. Uh, on-demand services, so not just offering rice, but food deliveries, uh, parcel deliveries across the region. And uh, also the latest thing is that they've been expanding pretty aggressively into um, payments and financial services. So um, they're really trying to offer you know, all of those services uh, across the region. So what are examples of those financial services? Right, so uh, they offer... Um, you know, small loans and insurance uh, investment products that the drivers can use, for example, if they want to, you know, borrow a little money or, uh, or also consumers using the app. Uh, so they're teaming up with, uh, you know, financial institutions in the region, lenders in the region to uh, operate a platform for a lot of different types of financial services. In its presentation to investors, Grab is obviously painting a pretty rosy growth story, but its net loss is also nearly was nearly three billion dollars last year. Um, can the growth story continue? Do you think? Like, wh- where do you think Grab, uh, you know, sort of faces potential head- headwinds? So, on the valuation, the price tag it also has a lot to do with the kind of global investors. Uh, kind of starting to pay more attention to tech companies in this part of the world. And so there's a company called C, which is also from Singapore, and they they have been listed uh, in New York for a couple of years. They are an e-commerce and online games company, one of the biggest uh, internet companies in this region. But their share price rose just last year, went crazy. And I think in the over the past year, it's been up more than five fivefold. And uh, its market cap is more than $120 billion. And so that has created a lot of hype and also kind of uh, uh, attracted a lot of attention to other tech companies that are preparing to go public. And uh, so that's the background where, you know, uh, investors are giving Grab a $40 billion valuation. Right. Investors investors have woken up to the fact that, hey, there are valuable businesses being built in Singapore and the rest of Southeast Asia. Yes. And Grab's, uh, Grab's, also, Grab's own argument is that it, has, it does have a growing business in a region where uh, a lot of the uh, penetration for online services uh, still is relatively low. The challenge is, is that so everyone is, as you said, is painting a pretty rosy picture for the future of uh, the company and also for the region. A lot of uh, predictions about how, how much the market will, overall market will grow you know, over the next couple of years. This region is not a, uh, it's pretty complex. Uh, it is a pretty fragmented region with a lot of companies with, uh, you know, different levels of economic development and some com- countries are very wealthy and others are not. And also you will be navigating, all the companies have to navigate, uh, you know, different regulation for uh, different countries. So, you know, 
even though it's referred to as one region, uh, it's a very diverse uh, environment. Yeah, like Sing- Singapore is very different than Indonesia, but right, in, in, right. in a lot yeah. of ways, density, income, etc. Yeah, so operating something like financial services, you know, trying to, to expand this across the region is, is a very complicated effort. And so whether... Um, you know, the growth of all these businesses, you know, next, especially long-term growth, uh, whether that's going to come as soon as a lot of people expect or a lot of investors expect, uh, that's still questionable. And uh, and also for Grab, even though it is one of the leading companies, uh, it does face a lot of competition. And um, so C, the company I mentioned, uh, you know, they have also been expanding into financial services and they have been able to raise a lot of money from the public market and uh, they are investing that money into, you know, their own payment and, you know, financial services. Uh, So uh, there will be a lot of competition. Let's turn to Didi. You had a really interesting story this week about essentially sort of the struggles of one of China's premier tech companies trying to sort of play in this hyper-competitive space of building and developing autonomous vehicles. And your piece led with this really interesting nugget about how Didi has tried to buy this very high-profile autonomous vehicle startup called Aurora back in 2017 uh, and the deal was blocked or they, they ended up scrapping the deal because of hesitations from the U.S. government. Uh, why why did you report out the story? What did you find kind of so interesting about the tale of, of Didi and autonomous cars? So when when I first heard uh, some of the details of the, the deal with Aurora, um, obviously, you know, that was interesting because it had never been reported. Nobody had talked about it. And also, it it, it happened uh, at an interesting time uh, back in 2017. And that was when Didi was, uh, you know, just starting to build its uh, autonomous driving research um, teams in both uh, China and in uh, Silicon Valley. And that was a time when also Uber was, uh, you know, building its uh, autonomous driving unit. And the fact that Didi had this very ambitious deal, it's a pretty bold move, uh, $1 billion, you know, $1 billion deal, you know, considering that Aurora was, at that time, was a very brand new startup, you know, that had just been created. And um, uh, so it really makes you wonder, you know, what could have happened? You know, how, you know, how would this deal, you know, have really, you know, redrawn the map of the industry? Uh, obviously, it didn't happen, but um, uh, so it, it does raise those questions. And also, uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, the, the clear message from what happened to this deal was that you know Didi's options in the U.S. will be limited. Um, you know, they can't just go and acquire one of the top companies in the U.S. Uh, because it will, you know, most likely be off off limits, not just for Didi, but for other Chinese companies. The question is that those companies, uh, especially those Chinese companies who are, uh, you know, expanding their efforts in China, raising a lot of money with a lot of support from the government, can they actually become the real uh, leaders in this industry? 
And then just stepping back, I mean, with both Grab and DD essentially like filing to go public the same week, both companies have bought the their equivalent uh, from Uber over the years. Both companies sort of, you know, essentially won the war with Uber or bought the subsidiaries that Uber had to sort of try to win in Southeast Asia and China. Stepping back, I mean, what does this mean for, for Asian ride hailing and delivery? Um, you know, do you have any kind of broader reflections on, on sort of what these kind of milestones mean? Those companies used to be called, like, you know, Didi, people used to refer to Didi as, uh, you know, Uber of China and Grab as Uber of Southeast Asia. Uh, but uh, when you talk to those companies now, I mean, they, I would say they are focusing a lot on, the differences, I mean, you know, how they're developing very differently. And the, the local context is important. And, you know, Grab is kind of emphasizing the point that it's one app that, you know, for everything and that there's a lot you can do when uh, those, all of those services are offered in one app. And uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, synergies between those businesses that could, you know, make them profitable in the future. And so when they describe their business, you know, they almost try to say that, you know, they're not the Uber of uh, Southeast Asia or they're not not the Uber of China. They've grown big enough that they've, they've sort of outgrown that label. Um, well, Jero, thanks so much for, for joining us this week. I appreciate it. Thanks, Corey. That's our show this week. Thanks so much to Jero and Nick Wingfield for coming on the show. And thanks to Ariella Markowitz for producing the 411. Have a great weekend, everybody.